Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case. Today in episode 97, our guest is Menachem Brody. Trevor, tell us a little bit about Menachem. We have had Menachem on the show in the past. He is the owner of Human Vortex Training and has over a decade of strength training and coaching experience. It was only after injury that he found cycling and then he merged his strength and training background with his new passion for cycling to bring those worlds together. We've heard from Menachem in episode 69 in the past where we discussed functional training, but today we're going to talk about something completely different. The core of this episode delves into the short and long-term effects of stretching, differentiates between the athletes in various disciplines that should be stretching more and who should be stretching less. You can, in fact, lose power and performance capability if you are over or under the optimal length for any given muscle. We discuss yoga as well and the appropriate way to practice that discipline. Menachem also will test Trevor's flexibility, which I got to say, pretty awkward, pretty painful to watch. Yeah, but we you... have photos of me looking like I'm flipping you off upside down. Yeah, that's pretty awkward and painful as well. Check them out on our social media. Our handle is at Real Fast Labs. As you'll hear in this episode, Menachem has graciously gifted a chapter of his new book to Fast Talk listeners. Visit the show notes for this episode to get that link. You can find all Fast Talk episodes and the show notes on our website, fastlabs.com slash fasttalk. Also on today's episode, we speak with one of my favorite Red Bull athletes, a fellow podcaster, Payson McKelvin. Check out his pod, The Adventure Stash, wherever you like to find your podcasts. Payson is a two-time marathon mountain bike national champion and a budding star in the gravel racing world. Now, don't get all bent out of shape, Trevor. Let's make you fast. Well, it's great to have Menachem Brody back on the program. You're sitting in Tel Aviv, I believe, and you've been on our show once before. Thanks for coming back to Fast Talk, Menachem. Chris and Trevor, thanks for having me, man. It's a real pleasure to be back. I'm really excited to be here and talk about stretching and everything that has to go with muscle lengthening. I know that you've, you're about to launch a new book, The Vortex Method. Is there much on the way of stretching education in that book? There's a little bit. And this is something like uh, 2019 was kind of the year that I flipped the switch and went from consumer to producer. The book has actually, believe it or not, I started writing it about four years ago. And it started with the whole thing with stretching, where I was going through physical therapy for a really badly uh, sprained ankle. And they kept telling me, stretch, stretch, stretch. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Um, And I actually started from that and built it out. And then uh, we tore it down uh, over the last five and a half, six months, completely rewrote it. The idea is that it's the most complete training approach for strength training. So you're not just getting uh, strength training, but you're also getting uh, insights as to what you actually need to do on the bike. So really giving you a balance between the 
performance limiters in response to training, so power output and the energy equation, because that's where a lot of us think about stretching. Well, if I get better resting muscle length, I'll get more power. Um, so we kind of go through that stuff, and, and it really lays out the whole training year and allows you to understand uh, what you actually need and how to tie everything together. Um, so it was a lot of fun to write. When I say fun, there are a couple other words that come to mind as well. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Yeah, I'm really excited. Like Between that and the certification course that we just launched, and uh, I had a couple other courses that, that have been in the works, uh, it's been a really big year. And the, the Vortex method, the idea is getting the, the power to the hands of the people so they can actually go out and, and do this stuff and realize, you know, it's kind of like you're looking at a uh, through a window in the garage that you're cleaning out and there's kind of a little ray of sun coming in. Well, that's where strength training for cycling is right now. And now you're just wiping off the whole window and you're like, oh, wow, there's treasure in here. I didn't realize that was gold and bronze. Holy cow. Awesome. So Chris and I being a little bit familiar with uh, book proposals, the thing the the publishers always ask you is, how do, you, how do you differentiate your book? In two sentences, how is your book different from other books out there? Well, the, the subtitle is The New Rules for Ultimate Strength and Performance in Cycling, and that's what it is. It's giving you section one is the fundamentals. So we're talking about the strength training basics, the special considerations for women, uh, which we are thankfully seeing more people out. And then section two is going through and giving you the actual methods of how to build a training plan. So you're not just getting samples, you're actually learning the different parts of the actual training program and how to put them together for yourself and your where you are in the training year and your capabilities to get the most impactful, powerful strength training program possible. I'm glad you could give us that that overview and, and, and talk about the genesis of the book when it comes to stretching. And I know Trevor sat down last night with his snifter of cognac to read some studies on uh, stretching as well. So let's dive in, shall we? Let's dive into stretching a little bit more. Trevor, tell us some of the things you learned last night when you were looking at mo the most current research on stretching as it pertains to cycling. So this is where I, I say, do I get my bonus for stretching is about relaxing? So I got my Barry White voice on today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I apologize ahead of time if I, I cough through this a little bit. I'm a little under the weather. So we did an episode on uh, cycling and staying healthy. Apparently, everything I said was BS. So uh, ignore that episode. <laughs> that was one of your first ones, right? Yeah. <laughs> We've come a long way. There you go. And I'm still sick. <laughs> there are times when I, I dive into the research getting ready for a podcast and think I, I, I have a pretty good grasp on it. And as I start reading the research, I go, wow, this is really fascinating. Um, and I get really excited about it. And this weekend was one of those cases where I read the, uh, some of the research I hadn't read on stretching and went, that's actually really cool. Um, there are a lot of opinions and, and we're going to really dive into our opinions on stretching. There's for and against. Some people say, just don't ever stretch. Other people say, uh, yeah, you should be sitting, you know, this probably going too far. This is outdated The sit on the, the mat and do 20, 30 minutes of stretching before you work out. But what did surprise me is actually how little research there is out there. Um, I actually read one review that was done in 2017 that said, basically, this is the first review done in 10 years. Mm. They tried to find high quality studies on the effects of stretching on performance, on muscle performance, and they couldn't do any statistical analysis because they couldn't get enough homogeneous studies. Mm. 
Hmm. Uh, then you add to that the fact that cycling is actually different from other sports, which we'll go into. Right. Cycling has no eccentric motion. Cycling doesn't have a, a stretch shortening cycle. What I'm hoping to do right now that I think is going to be really interesting is we talk about stretching and you know, stretching is helpful for recovery or it's helpful for performance. You just think, well, lengthens your muscles. But what actually are what is going on when you stretch? Yeah, let's, let's um, talk about that. And what are the potential benefits? So what I'm going to do right now is just summarize those three. And then the rest of the podcast is going to be talking about, is there actually something to this? Are there benefits? Uh, where I think Menachem is really going to take it and, and run with it. The three things that happen when you stretch. And there's also, we can talk about stretching and then what's the immediate effects afterwards versus chronic stretching where it's part of your routine and what happens over six, seven, eight weeks. Mm -hmm. The first effect is what's called an increased stretch tolerance. And this both, there's a, there's a short-term effect and a long-term effect. So if you get on the ground, you stretch your quad, and let's say you do a long three, four-minute hold, there's a certain point where all of a sudden it just feels like the muscle releases and you can go deeper into the stretch. Mm -hmm. What's happening, we've talked about this before on the show, is you, you have what are called Golgi tendons, appropriate receptors that stretch, sense lengthening and shortening of the muscle. And they try to protect a muscle. So if they feel a muscle is getting too stretched, the Golgi tendon is actually going to activate and cause the muscle to contract, to prevent it from being lengthened too much sure. and being damaged. So one of the effects of stretching is to get that Golgi tendon to relax and say, okay, I'm going to let you take the muscle a little bit further. Mm -hmm. There's an immediate effect, but there's also a belief that over time you essentially kind of reprogram so that mm -hmm. you have a greater tolerance to just letting the muscles stretch out. Kind of like drinking more, gain a tolerance over time. Yeah, that helps performance too. <laughs> In some ways, I guess, maybe. It depends on how often you got to have somebody push you along the road for a couple minutes. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> oh, I'm all for it. Next time Chris and I go and race up Flagstaff, have a couple drinks before. Me? Yes, What please. kind of drinks? Alcoholic drinks? We were talking about cognac earlier. <laughs> maybe no. I'll, I'll save that till after I when I be defeat you. Ooh, yeah, Ooh, let's, let's, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to make sure we're descending when you got the dizzies. Let's see how you do there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. I hear you. So second thing, and this is, I'm, I'm going to use an analogy that's almost not an analogy. Think okay. of a, a muscle. So the muscle and the tendons combined, think of them like an elastic because a muscle actually does have what is called viscoelastic properties. It's designed to have that. There is a certain efficiency in really good evolutionary design. Muscles are designed to stretch. You take some of that energy mm -hmm. into the muscle, into the, the tendons, and then just like an elastic, so you stretch an elastic, you let it go, it snaps back. It rebounds. So it takes that energy that you put into it and uses that energy to help the contraction. Mm -hmm. When we walk, when we run, when we do most activities, we take advantage of some of that return of energy to help any sort of movement, to help any sort of contraction. Case where you can see what happens if you don't have that viscoelastic properties you will often see an elderly, they really lose that. There's no snap back of the muscles. And that's when you start seeing elderly people start doing kind of a short a shuffle, shuffle walk because right. the only way they can produce the movement is pure actual contractions mm -hmm. and it gets harder. So just like under an elastic band, when you're thinking about these viscoelastic properties, you think about an old elastic, mm -hmm. 
and you stretch it and it kind of, you start seeing a little bit of tearing in it and it loses some of that energy and doesn't snap back as well as a nice young brand new supple elastic. Right. Um, so that's, we talked about this when we were talking about tires and tire pressure, that's hysteresis, right? So there is hysteresis in muscles where they will actually hysteresis is that loss of that energy. They'll dissipate as, as heat. Mm -hmm. So, um, there is a belief that if you have a very inflexible muscle, you're going to have more hysteresis and you're not going to see as much return of that energy. People who, who believe in stretching, one of the things they'll say is that it changes this viscoelastic nature and creates an elastic that's more supple, that's easy to stretch and really snaps back mm. well. Mm-hmm. The third thing is, and this is only really in chronic stretching, is what they call the addition of sarcomeres in series. So let so me let me dive sarcomere? into it and explain this one. So you might, if you remember high school biology in your muscles, you have these little proteins called actin and myosin that grab onto one another and pull each other closer. So that whole unit is called the sarcomere. And when you look at a muscle, there's multiple units. There's multiple of these sarcomeres in a row in a muscle. And that's what gives the muscle that red, white, red, red, white look. Mm Mm-hmm. So one of the beliefs is that as you stretch the muscle and it becomes longer, it actually adds more sarcomeres. So think of that as you are now adding to the length of the muscle more contractile units, Mm -hmm. which can improve the contractive force of the muscle. Not necessarily strength, but it's more the belief is it might give you some of that explosive, more Mm -hmm. explosive Mm -hmm. type power. That sounds like a good thing. It is a good thing. So that's that taking that elastic and actually making it a... you know, uh, the elastic that can snap back even better. Right, exactly. The issue with this, um, and we'll we'll go into, there's a lot of issues. And I know Menachem's sitting here just waiting to, to jump on this. Over time, you're lengthening the muscle. And there is, in any sort of movement, an optimal length. So again, if you think of an elastic, if you have a really long elastic, so let's say you have a seven inch long elastic and you're only stretching it to, to five inches. Right. It's going to be kind of loose. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to lose some energy in just getting that, that elastic to tighten up. So if you, so the idea here is there's an optimal length for every muscle. And if you go beyond that optimal length, you're going to lose some power. You're going to lose some of your, your energy. Yep. And just getting those, the, that muscle to tighten up before it can actually produce any sort of do any sort of work. seems like you would lose both the snap and some stability with it being that loose. And that's one of the, one of the beliefs. Yeah. So always remember there is an optimal length to a muscle and way to think about it is do a bicep curl. Your max lift is going to be different at different points in the curl. So at the start of the curl, you're actually quite weak and that's when the muscle is at its longest position right. your strongest point is kind of in the midpoint mm-hmm. of uh of the bicep curl like 90 degrees and that's, up that's where you have the optimal length of the muscle mm-hmm. so there is a an you you this is one of the the complexities that we're going to go into but a muscle can be too short a muscle can also be too long you're always looking for that optimal length so Menachem, how did i do with all that well, what would you like to add? There's a lot there to unpack, but my, my question is, is that when we focus on the lengthening, are we actually stretching the connective tissue or the muscle? Like there's so much 
that we'll get into. And and I don't like the yes camp or the no camp because the answer is it depends, right? So there's, you know, you covered a lot in there that that affects the the cyclist. So we have the elderly short shuffle. We have the mobility tissues, the adaptive to stretch, the neurophysiology. Like there's so many layers to go into, but I think you hit all of the really major ones. Uh, but it's also interesting to hear how you went through the research. Dean Somerset posted actually about how the big problem with mobility and stretching research. And he's looked at over 400, to quote, uh, over 400 scientific publications on mobility, tissue adaptive qualities to stretch neurophysiology and all sorts of stuff related to how to become more bendy and supple in life. I like bendy. That's a very technical word. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But he points out most, and this was my issue with it. And it sounds like Trevor, you know, you went through this as well. Most of that research isn't done on humans. It's done on like hamsters. (laughs) Yep. So, you know, the long-term that was my frustration getting ready for the, the show as well is like, great rats. Fantastic. That does not carry over very well. Well, so let's add so. even another complexity to that. Uh, and by the way, that, that study that I read this weekend that I, I really quite enjoyed that review is, uh, was written by Dr. Medeiros and it's in the journal of human movement science, uh, from 2017. But here's the thing that's really going to bake your noodle, and I can't believe I just used that expression. <laughs> is that from Canada? No, I have no idea where that is. I've never heard that, that before. That is not a Canadian one. But this got me is, so I just talked about that viscoelastic um, nature of muscles. And certainly when you're talking about running, when you're talking about walking, that's really important. We are designed to really take advantage of that snapback of the elastic. The energy is stored in the, the muscle tendon unit um, in the in- eccentric motion. Mm-hmm. So when you have that forceful lengthening of the muscle and then the energy returns or is, is used during the contraction, there's no eccentric movement in cycling. Mm-hmm. So you actually, so that, that effect where you store that energy and then reuse it, it's called a stretch shortening cycle. We don't have that in cycling. To take it even further, you look at the cycling movement because most your your muscles that comprise the quads cross over two joints. The the nature of the pedal stroke, you never really have your quads in a truly lengthened position. Sure. Right. They're always just a little bit shortened. So even when you just read the research on stretching, people tend to generalize and they go, Oh, well, here's a study about stretching and, and running. That's either for or against. And then they go, well, it must must be the same for cycling. But running, you have a stretch shortening cycle. Mm -hmm. Cycling, you do not. You do not have eccentric motion in cycling. So the rules don't cross over. Mm -hmm. And then as monogamous, as you said, then you start taking animal studies where they're they're actually pulling out muscles and putting weights on them. It's even further from reality. There's a, so much to unpackage here. I'll try and stick with the main points, but you know, I want to get, this is a great opportunity to, to get the message out there, but most of you as cyclists are just butchering the uh, jumps. When you're, what you're doing is plyometric where you do a box jump and you're slamming down your feet onto a box. That's not actual plyometrics. That's an explosive power exercise that many people are doing way too many efforts. So like when I prescribe, you know, hands on hips jumps or jumps, box jumps, people are like, oh, three sets of four, I, I can do 40. Like that's not the point. If you actually want to get the stretch shortening cycle, there has to be a ground contact and a quick takeoff. But what I want to kind of pull out here is that you're talking about, you know, 
things that are involved with how we actually need to train, there is no stretch shortening cycle per se in cycling, but there's that uh, reciprocal inhibition where, you know, the study was done. And of course we want to see more where the cyclist who stomps down on the pedals, the hardest essentially for the longest is going to win. So the ability to contract and then to relax on the backside on the opposite uh, leg is going to allow you to produce more power uh, with less resistance. So even though we're not getting that side of things, there's still um, the, the resting length tension relationship of the muscle fibers. We have the anatomical lever arms. Yeah, you have, you know, inhibition of some muscles that you have to develop. So as cyclists, we often tend to overuse our hamstrings and underuse our glutes and overuse our quads. Um, but there's so many other things that have to be taken into account, you know, such as neuromuscular reflexes, um, the the somatic somatosensory feedback like there's so many things that we have to think about that when you go through in your training that yeah we may not be getting these things in our sport but we are getting you know the muscle to be able to do its three primary jobs better and in this order and this is where people forget when we go into stretching is the muscle has three jobs. Number one is to protect a joint. Number two is to stabilize a joint while an adjacent joint moves. And then number three, after those two have already been accomplished is to move a joint. And this is where as cyclists, you know, we think that going out and just stretching a muscle is going to help make it better. And even though what you said is correct, we don't have a stretch shortening. There's a lot of these uh, principles and things that are applying to stretching that and regular sports that we don't have. But when you go out and you tell a muscle to stretch and relax, at a certain point, by the way, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit later, you're breaking rule number one, right? So if you're a quad dominant cyclist and you're going through stretching, you're not getting it to protect the joint. You're not giving anything else that job or to, to get anything to fire to do its job. So yeah, you may not be getting the stretch shortening cycle, but you're creating a more unstable joint essentially. So, you know, that's kind of the game I think we have to play is there's the science side of it, but then we also have to look at the biomechanics, the stability, uh, the symmetry, the activation patterns, muscularity. Then we can talk about the mobility and flexibility and end of range. And I think that's where the conversation should really start is more from, you know, what do we want to get out of our stretching uh, versus, you know, is stretching actually good for us? So that was a, a really good way to lead into our next little discussion here, which is about whether stretching solves muscle problems, prevents injury. What do you think? Again, it, it depends. And, and right now it kind of depends on where the attitudes towards uh, stretching and what you're actually looking at doing are leaning. Now, one of the things that we need to be careful with in, in terms of reading the research literature, and I, I've caught myself, I probably do this at least once a month where I just kind of go, I skip ahead to what the results were, and I go back to how they did it. And I don't really you know, pay attention to the statistical breakdown. There's a really good book called uh, How to Lie with Statistics, which was published in the 70s. And also who is reviewing or not reviewing that, that article? Because these are all considerations that when people like to cite research, and I made this mistake, you know, four, five, 10 times early on in my career, when I was so focused on the research where I just took the results for what they were, not looking at, you know, does this actually make sense and who are the, the subjects? So when we take that into consideration, I think we need to kind of take the research and put it aside and say, okay, well, let's think about who are the riders that I know that are actually feeling better from stretching and who are those that are feeling worse from stretching. So if we look at it from that standpoint, if you're coming from a standpoint of you're very strong, 
through a very small range of motion. And you're starting to, as you know, Trevor mentioned earlier, you're starting to shuffle a little, <laughs> uh, like you're a little older and you're only in your 40s or 50s. Well, stretching within reason, not to extreme ranges of motion, is probably good for you. That's probably going to help. Uh, then in that case, it can be a defense mechanism and it can also be a performance enhancer. Whereas if you're the type of person who's, you know, at, well, again, stealing Dean's terms is bendy and you're, you know, oh, my stem slammed and now I have, what was it at the tour down under? The guy had 150 stem on a 60, 60 centimeter bike, I think it was. <laughs> yeah. Like, so pro. Yeah, but you look at his body type and like, I haven't assessed him, but at first I, I clicked on it. I was like, what? 150, you know, this is totally clickbait. I'm like, wow, this guy actually looks like he needs it. Now that's not to say that pros don't come out with, you know, from more acetabular impingement or lower back issues because of instability, but you look at him riding, you're like, yeah, that, that looks about right. It doesn't look super aggressive. So for someone like him, maybe stretching would cause that injury because he's too bendy. So we have to kind of figure out, you know, what is the appropriate uh, balance that we want to have? And, and the muscle stiffness is kind of a key quality that will allow us to understand what we can go through. And a lot of this comes down to motor control, joint stability, and kinesthetic awareness. And this is something I'm really familiar with right now because I've I've personally been going through first a broken fibula with some screws and now a, a meniscal surgery within four months of one another. So that kinesthetic awareness, you know, is is really out. The joint is stable. There's nothing wrong with the joint but I don't have, I'm missing some of that tissue. So I'm missing that proprioceptive. And that's something a lot of people don't talk about with connective tissue is it's not just there to help cushion or, or to move forces or to keep you stable. It's also proprioceptive. If you're going through and, and you know, you're, you're changing that sensory feedback from the muscle spindles or the Golgi tendon organ, whatever you want to say that the technical thing that's actually registering it. If you keep going and telling it, Hey, this might be your normal range of motion at the end, but we want you to go more. The brain is now losing that, that ability to produce proper muscle stiffness to protect that joint and or to create performance. So that means that like a growing number of people in the United States who are getting super aggressive with yoga, they are having a very high incidence of hip surgeries. And um, I forget where I read it. It was somebody online. I'll see if I can find it. But somebody did a really long breakdown of why yoga at, at its extreme of, of what it is today is, is not necessarily healthy. But the incidence of, oh, who was it? Oh, there's another professor I, I went and listened to. The incidence in Eastern Europeans um, and Americans for hip surgery from doing yoga for long periods of time is very high. However, when you go to the, the Indian population or far east, it's much lower. And a lot of it has to do with what the bodies are built for, the genetics as they go through, but also how they're practicing it. If you go into an actual yoga house uh, you know, in India, it's going to be a very different, unless it's a, a westernized, very hyped up, it's going to be very different. It's more about mindfulness, relaxing your whole body as it opposed to, oh yeah, you got to go all the way back into boat pose and you have to, re you know, the focus is very different. So if you're looking for to, to solve problems and help you relax, don't go extreme. If you want it to prevent injury, look at, are you getting the normal range of motion? Have you lost that range of motion? And have you lost the ability to maintain that muscle stiffness that's going to help you perform on the bike and be able to maintain stability and, and good posture off the bike? So the, the really simplified way I like to think of this, or I explain it to my athletes, is going back to that elastic analogy. 
you don't want the two extremes. So the one extreme is that old elastic you find at the back of the drawer that's lost a lot of its viscoelastic properties. You take that elastic, you try to stretch it, you're going to damage it. It might even snap. It might snap. <laughs> and I've been in the gym when I've seen a muscle snap. It's a really unpleasant sight. Sure. On the flip side, though, is if you overstretch, as you were saying, if you just focus on stretching, you're not doing strengthening, you're really trying to really lengthen those muscles. Think about that really long, floppy elastic. And remember, muscles have multiple purposes, not just movement, not just to do work, but they also protect your joints. And if you got a bunch of these, so I'm going to use, I forget the unscientific word bendy. use, bendy, but I'm going to use floppy. Floppy. If you got a Even bunch better. of floppy muscles around your joints, Ugh, gross. they can't protect that joint. And then the joint becomes floppy. And I'm somebody, I have a back problem. I can tell you the quickest way to put my back out is to do a ton of stretching on my back muscles because those muscles are serving a role, keeping my line and my, my spine in a line um, and keeping it protected. And if I overstretch them, they can't do that job anymore. And then my back is just done. Mm. It sounds like genetics does play a role here because some people are quote naturally bendy and other people are not so bendy. So how do you determine what sort of camp you fall into besides just trying to touch your toes and go from there? There's a, a bunch of different ways. I mean, I just want to touch on something with uh, what Trevor said, like that neuromuscular engagement and, and the ability of the muscles to maintain stiffness, like proximal stiffness creates distal motion, right? So they go hand in hand. And, and you know, as you pointed out, they, they're shock absorbers, right? So when we look at, you know, where to find the optimal for you and which one to go through, uh, this is really part of the assessment that I go through with every athlete. I shake their hand. So have somebody give you a handshake and, and you don't want to tell them that you're testing. Just give them a handshake and then say to them, can you tell me about my handshake? Was it a dead fish? Was it, you know, crushing? Believe it or not, your handshake will give you a, a very big hat tip as to what type of neural tension you naturally have. If it's very soft, unless you're purposefully doing that, you know, if you're the dumb uh, meeting, um, James Bond, you know, you just put the hand out like the queen. Well, of course, that's an exception. Um, but a normal handshake, a business handshake, and ask them, you know, how does that rate? Is that the rock shaking your hand or not? So that would be the first thing is just kind of getting a feel for what other people think. The other is, you know, are you comfortable just kind of sitting in contorted positions? And people look at you like you're comfortable and you're like, mm -hmm. do you want a pillow? Mm -mm, I'm good. Or is it that you're very stiff, literally. You know, it, it's funny because it's true. It's one of those things. I, you know, my sister can sit in all these different positions. I'm like, are you comfortable? She's like, mm -hmm, yeah, really comfortable. Like, really? <laughs> sure you want a pillow or something? Like, prop you up. Whereas other riders, and we all know them, when we go to the cafe and we sit down for espresso, they're very, very alert. You know, they're almost like there's a pole. <laughs> and, they, they, and others are just very rounded forward. They slouch forward in their chair and they kind of look like they're still riding their bike from the side. You know, if they were to put their legs up on the table and put some cranks there and look the same. So that would be the first one. But the second one is um, also Dean, believe it or not, has another, he's a great resource. I'll, I'll send you guys over the link. Uh, he has a great article that talks about hips and quote unquote flexibility. So Dean, as a human being, when he tries to touch his toes, sitting or otherwise, can't do it. If he goes for a full split with the feet out to the side, he can do it. Right. If he tries to go one foot forward, one foot back. So a lot of it also comes down to what's your actual anatomical structure look like? We have to be very careful about how we define flexibility. 
Now, I saved the best one for last. So we're going to pick on Trevor today. So Trevor, we're going to have you take your hand, put it, uh, your arm straight ahead at shoulder height with your palm facing up. So you're kind of doing a stop in the name of love. Um, <laughs> and what I want you to try and do, <laughs> I couldn't help it. I want you to try and take your index finger and bend it back towards your forearm. And Chris, I want you to judge how far back he gets as opposed to 90 degrees. So arm is straight at shoulder height, palm is facing up. And then just try and, and take that uh, finger back towards the uh, the forearm. Uh, just point out that I'm trying to bend back a very broken finger. Wait, wait. His palm should be use the other towards finger. the ceiling. Okay. Okay. And then so bend now, my bend his index finger towards his face or backwards towards his gut. Towards his face without breaking it off or snapping anything. Okay. Yeah, I can tell you, I'm on the not flexible side unless I do lots of stretching. My nephew. He can bend all his fingers backwards. He can bend his elbow backwards. He's, he, if you asked him to take his finger and touch his, any part of his hand, he could do it. Um, and I've actually, I did a little bit of coaching with him and basically said, I don't ever want you stretching. You are flexible enough. We actually need to be doing a lot of strengthening work with you or you're going to start having problems. You're going to start having injuries. But I, I am the opposite. I know I'm stiff. And, and I love that you brought up the, do you, are you comfortable in a chair? Because I know when I'm neglecting my stretching, I just can't sit comfortably in a seat. And that's those are the two easy ones. Like, you know, if we look at, at Chris and Jana also, like we'll see different ranges, but that's, I forget what the name of the, the technical name of the test is, but that's one of the easy ones. This, can you pull your index finger all the way back to your forearm? But that gives us a general idea. Like you, you, we have to have certain muscle stiffness. So, you know, Trevor with, with the back stuff and you saying that you're generally not that stretchy. So the first thing I look at is, okay, well, you know, let's look at your riding position and see how stretchy you're trying to make your back. You know, if we're seeing that you're not really well supported on the saddle, you're uh, tilting side to side or rotating side to side, like we could throw the Leomo on you and kind of see what's actually going now, which is really cool because you mm -hmm. can actually see that. But then we would look at, do you actually need stretching? So my guess is you're probably stretching your quadriceps, your hip flexors, and your lats. You're not actually stretching your lower back. Is that a, a, a true guess or am I? Yes. No, I completely avoid my lower back because like I said, if I start stretching lower back muscles, my back goes out. But exactly what you said. So I, I try to build some mobility into my hips. I have very inflexible hips. I am horrible on a dance floor. <laughs> uh, I am not surprised by that at all, yeah, actually. No, I mean, uh, you're dressed the part right now with your shock, your shock of uh, gray hair coming out of your chest. But um, <laughs> other than that, I can't imagine you on the dance floor, Trevor. Yeah, no, it's not a, not a pretty sight. Whenever somebody asks me to dance, I'm just like, look, that's going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. I don't always stretch my back, but when I do, it's on Saturday night at the dance. Saturday night fever. <laughs> but yes, I do a lot of hip work. And I still remember this was like 2006 uh, at the center. They had all of us go to a yoga session. It was actually the first yoga session of my life. Performance center over at the uh, campus. In Victoria. Oh, in Victoria. We were doing long poses, long holds. And so they wanted us to do a half lotus. And I remember the instructor coming over to me and going, why aren't you putting your foot on top of your knee? You know, kind of in that little, mm -hmm. and I'm like, I can't, I couldn't, mm -hmm. I didn't have the flexibility to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty inflexible too. I'm right there with you, Trevor. I mean, my hips are way more act. Well, let's not get into what my hips are doing, but um, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty stiff too.
We want to talk to a pro about this topic to see how someone who is competitive at a high level integrates stretching into their training routine if they do at all. So we sat down and talked to Red Bull athlete and host of the Adventure Stash podcast, Payson McKelvin, for his thoughts on this topic. So Payson, as a mountain biker and a gravel racer, do you use stretching in your daily routine? Do you use it as a recovery tool? Do you use it for your warm-up? I do stretch, but it's more as I as I feel I need it. Um, I don't have a, a stretching regimen per se. Um, I've heard, it's it seems like one of those topics where you've got folks all over the map, folks theoretically in the know all over the map based on what I've heard. The kind of stretching I do is I guess what you'd call more dynamic stretching. Part of my gym warm-up routine involves some stretching, but it's almost more mobility type stuff, creating the the range of motion or increasing the range of motion that you actually are able to control. And by that, I mean, you know, if you just pull up your your ankle to your butt to, to stretch your quad, that's not really a movement that you're uh, under control with per se. So one thing we've kind of been working on is the mobility component. So how far can you get that foot back to your butt without using your hands help, for example. That said, sometimes I will do much more traditional stretching just when it feels right. You know, when muscles are really sore for me, and I think for a lot of people, stretching just feels really good. And it it's not like some crazy half hour thing where I meticulously go through every muscle group and, and have a checklist and make sure I get everything. It's more just a, this feels good. I need to kind of stretch here, that sort of thing. And I've, I've heard mixed things about whether stretching is quote unquote good or not. I would never stretch aggressively like on the start line of a race. Uh, that said, one of the veterans that I race against, Carl Decker is pretty famous for doing stretching right on the start line. And uh, we kind of giggle at him for that now and then, but that's what he likes to do. Yeah, it, it's more of a case-by-case case basis. And I actually had a professor in college who is very, very against stretching. But to me, it just kind of feels really good sometimes. And I think at the end of the day, there's probably right. something to that. What about yoga? Do you incorporate that into your life in any way or as a recovery tool or even a, a way to relax the mind? I'm not a regular yogi. Uh, I have done yoga in the past and I will do it here and there. Again, it's more something that just feels good. This kind of reminds me of the conversation I often have about CrossFit where people see that I go to a CrossFit gym and they see that a lot of the moves I do look a lot like CrossFit and they ask if I do CrossFit. And I say, well, kind of like a lot of the strength moves we work with are are very much look like CrossFit and some of them are even, you know, in the CrossFit games, but we don't have the time component at all. Like I'm not rushing through it, really focusing on quality over quantity of reps, all that sort of thing. And so similarly with, with stretching and yoga, it's just sort of like some of the moves probably that I do probably look like yoga, but it's not because. Right. Right. I understand. <laughs> yeah. They just feel right. So, you know, if I, if I say do, really push myself towards the end of a strength workout in a plank position and just see how long I can hold a plank position and really, you know, climb into the box and, and, and bite down and, and do a max out on a plank. 
um, which is something we do often at the end of a gym workout. What feels really good right after that is a downward dog move. Does that mean I do yoga? <laughs> I don't know. Right. <laughs> okay, back to Menachem. With cycling, a lot of us are picking up bad habits because we're mostly adults. We're going into a flex position that we spend all of our time sitting in at home, and then we're going and doing it on the bike. Is flexibility itself going to help you? And this is where that hamstring stretch that everybody loves doing, we've known since the 90s. If I'm not mistaken, either McGill uh, published the first one or he he talked about it in his book, um, Low Back Disorders. It's early on in the book. Whether or not he did the study, it said back in the late 80s, early 90s that alleviating, quote unquote, that neural tension is not resolving back pain. It actually comes back a little bit worse. So what you actually need is to do a, a deep dive to figure out what's actually causing that back pain. But for most cyclists, just like most runners, oh, my back hurts. I'm going to stretch my hamstrings. Well, that's not necessarily what you need. Let's go back to the three jobs that the muscle have and look at it in order. Number one is to protect a joint. Well, if a muscle is tight, that's a really big flag from the, the body saying, hey, something's out of balance here. This isn't working well, man. I'm really not feeling so great. Um, or that an adjacent joint is not stable. And usually as, as a cyclist, we kind of know that. That's where we kind of know, you know what, my, my back doesn't feel that great. You know, when you start putting out the power, ah, it doesn't feel good standing, so I'm just going to sit. But then you're getting off the bike and stretching. Well, we've got to find where and what's going on and then determine is stretching the best thing. And here's the thing. I, I, I've worked with... Uh, I don't know how many athletes I, I've had a number have back pain. I kind of want to stay away from that because that's a, a very special. Let's go more with knee pain, knee pain and shoulder pain. So the number of athletes I've worked with specifically, specifically cyclist basketball players and triathletes, they've had significant increases in their stability, their uh, muscle activation symmetry, meaning the right and left side. So a lot of cyclists can only feed on one side, not the other. Um, getting better movement patterns, uh, better strength. They're getting more muscle balance, better motor control, better mobility and flexibility. And all of this has come through doing next to no stretching. This is done through muscle activation, putting them into positions. Uh, I'm a big fan of using eccentric strength. So a 3-1-3-1 tempo is very common for athletes who come to me. And this is one of the things I cover in the book as well, actually. Um, and the tempo, the lifting tempo is one of the key ingredients when you're building a training plan. And a lot of athletes are so confused when I put this in there. Like, what's 5-0-2-0? Well, let's stick with 3-1-3-1. 3131, it, it stands for the amount of time for the eccentric, or if we're doing a squat for lowering. The second number is a pause at the bottom, your bottom end of range of motion. The third number is how long it takes you to come up out of the squat or the concentric. And then the last number is the time to reset or rest at the top. So 3131, if we're doing a goblet squat or a front squat, <clears throat> that means that we're descending over three seconds. So it doesn't mean starting slow and then dropping to the bottom. You want to try and, you know, gauge yourself as you go down, stopping at your bottom of the range of motion, keeping all of the muscles engaged, and then engaging to come back up over three seconds, and then you have a second to reset. These types of contractions, using this tempo in this way, and by the way, if you want to develop true explosive power after you've learned how to master a, a position, like a hang power clean, when you've learned how to master the hinge, you're going to come down with a bar. You're going to use about 20 to 30% of your estimated one rep max. You're going to hang down there for two to four seconds. Some coaches will say five to six. 
boom, you're going to explode up. Why do we stop? Because we don't want that elasticity. We, we want a full neuromuscular firing. So when we're going through these three one three ones, by taking our time to eccentrically load the body, we're doing three things. We're teaching proximal stiffness for distal motion. We're teaching you how to ignite the abdominal hoop. And when people read the book, they'll see abdominal hoop instead of abs because it's all 360 and it includes a number of muscles. Um, but we're teaching you to create stiffness between the rib cage and pelvis while you're getting movement from the hips, the knees, the ankles. You're learning how to control the bottom of the uh, movement before you create motion. You're, you're engaging those muscles, but subconsciously, you're also tapping into the proprioceptive uh, localities of the different joints. So remember, part of my meniscus is missing now, or is clipped out. Somebody has it somewhere as a trophy. <laughs> Look at him. This is going to affect how you understand your proprioception. When you go through this eccentric motion, you're actually getting a stretch reflex stronger so to speak, in through the muscle. That's not the technical jargon, but you're getting a stronger stretch. You're tapping in and teaching the body, hey, if we go really slow, this is where things are going. Here's how to create that proximal stiffness, and then you're teaching it how to move. All right, let's let's jump over to our next belief here and, and debate it. Does stretching aid performance, yes or no? So it can. Again, you know, the answer to all these really is it, it depends, but let's make it black and white. Let's play that game. So if we're talking about someone who has been riding for four to six years, they haven't really done any strength training, they're just on their bike, uh, maybe they've done a good job in bike fitting, but they're starting to log a lot more miles. They're also, you know, sitting a little bit more at work, which tends to go hand in hand. Now we're getting into the point where there's a difference in muscle resting length and joint position. In that case, some stretching, and I, I usually am a bigger proponent of dynamic movement than passive stretching, can be useful. But we need to be very mindful of when we're using it, right? So like there was a study done in the early 90s, and I, I, this was my own experience as well, and this is why I used to come in for basketball practice and static stretch for about 15 minutes because that's what my uh, the person who was teaching me had, had taught me. But I realized after running late for practice uh, for a week, that I was actually performing better and more springy, another technical term, um, when I skipped those. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do the static stretching. Well, lo and behold, there was a study done in the early to mid 90s that showed that there's a decrease in power output after doing uh, static stretching uh, for about 15 to 30 minutes. And we're talking between 10 and 15%. So if you're talking about you know doing these stretches like runners like to do before they go off for the starting gun where they're stretching their hamstrings, that's probably a pretty bad idea. If you're talking about uh, an activation versus a stretch, or you're stretching and then activating the muscles. So let's take uh, the chest as an example. If we're doing a foam roller Y stretch, and we're you know tying the breathing into that, keeping good rib position, and we're getting those muscles to open, and then we're getting up and doing like a bent over um, thoracic rotation or a band pull apart from the the right places, that'll be fantastic because not only are you opening one muscle. And this is really the key to getting it to aid in performance is if you're going to stretch or relax one muscle that's tight and short, you need to activate something else that needs to fire to help balance that out. And that's kind of the, the key that we're looking for is that balance as we go through. But if you're just going to go through and, and just stretch, 
I'm, I'm, I'm firmly against that. If, you know, if you tell me, Hey, I only have 20 minutes and I want to do something to help me work out. I like stretching. I'll tell you, okay, we'll do a little bit of stretching, but let's do some activation exercises after. But you know, Chris, what, what have your experiences been as far as aiding performance? Have you tried this for two weeks at a time and, and seen any results or changes? I probably never uh, in high school running, we used to do group stretching and it was based on, I would say nothing more than dogmatic belief that it was helpful. And that's probably a lot of people's experience back then. I wouldn't say I ever did a, a even assessment of whether it worked or not, or had the experience like you did where I would skip it for a week or by happenstance, it didn't happen for a week to see, to, to compare those two with or without stretching. Now, I don't do any sort of passive stretching at all. And uh, that's just me. Um, and I'm, like I said earlier, probably relatively on the tight side, I guess, but I feel like I'm also um, not prone to any particular uh, injuries or imbalances either. And when, you know, when you start talking about, can you get comfortable in weird contorted positions on a couch? Yeah, sure. I can actually, am I, so I don't know if I'm the stretchiest, but I'm, I'm probably, I'm going to say I'm, I'm kind of where I need to be. That's a really, that's a really layman's assessment of where, mm -hmm. <laughs> and a lazy person's assessment of where I should be. No, but that's the thing that that's, that's kind of the point of asking just off the cuff is like, this is how you kind of look at it is how am I feeling? How am I moving? Now, here's the next question. Can you hinge, squat, press, pull, and, and uh, row all in good motions? Or do you feel like you're kind of out of alignment? For no, I would say I, I could do that all fairly well, even though I don't do it often, I would say that that, that would seem relatively easy to have proper technique and do that efficiently. Well, so the things I'm going to bring in here is this is where you start getting into some, some sports-specific questions. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my general um, assessment is going back to that there is an optimal length. So if you are like me and uh, highly inflexible naturally, getting on the bike, trying to get into an aero position, I'm going to be outside of my, my natural or the, the optimal lengths and I'm going to lose some power. So there is a value in, in stretching, particularly you will see time trialists do a lot of cycling because they want to get really arrow, which means they are lengthening the glutes, they're lengthening the hamstrings, they're lengthening the calves. And for most people, that, that really good arrow position on a time trial bike gets them outside of their optimal length. So time trials will, will stretch a lot of that back chain, um, which actually will potentially put them outside of optimal length on a road bike, which is why it's really hard to be mm. best time trials in the world and best road cyclist in the world. It's one, one of the, the, the reasons, but you know, going back to the, the changes that you see from stretching, um, you think about running, there is that of viscoelastic properties. So there is an argument to say, improving the viscoelasticity of muscles is going to help running um, potentially prevent injury from all that, that impact. Uh, I didn't see a ton of research one way or the other. The one thing I did see is certainly stretching before you do a running event is inefficient because that's getting outside of the optimal length. And then you have that, as we said, it's kind of a, you go with the non-scientific term, 
you have that floppier muscle that mm, you're going to waste floppy. energy on getting it to tighten. So pretty universal. All the the research I saw on running said, no, don't don't stretch before a running event. Cycling again is interesting because that viscoelastic element doesn't really exist. So in cycling, there might be an argument for saying increasing the number of sarcomeres has a benefit as long as you don't get outside of your optimal length, because there is no short stretch shortening cycle. There is no use of that elastic property to generate power. It is all a concentric contraction. Um, and that review showed that for the most part, there seems to be benefits to improving strength of concentric contractions from chronic stretching, stre- you know, stretching over, over weeks to months. Mm-hmm. Another thing that kind of shocked me, I did find a study from 2006 that looked at stretching as a warm up before doing maximal cycling efforts. Hmm. So like really short five, 10, 30 second, one minute efforts and across the board doing a stretch. So you, what they would, the, the athletes would do is the control group would do a five minute warm up, then rest for a bit, then do these efforts. The study group would do a five minute warm up, then do a stretch, then have a short break and, and, and do the efforts. Mm-hmm. Pretty universally, you saw improvements in the stretched group. Hmm which goes against a lot of what they were saying. But again, that issue that you have in running where you you make a floppier muscle and you lose some of that, that snap back isn't a factor in cycling. Mm-hmm. So the question here is why are they seeing improvements in really, really high level power? And I'm just, I was thinking about this all last night. I couldn't find a single thing on it. So I'm just brainstorming here. But one of the possibilities I thought about is going back to those Golgi tendons and proprioceptors because on a bike, and they did point out in the study, they really focus on quads, hip flexors. Quads are always in a shortened state, mm-hmm. which means that Golgi tendon might always be a little bit activated and encouraging a little bit of a contraction at all, at all times, which will actually at certain points in the pedal stroke, fight your pedal stroke. You think of the extreme of this. We, we did that whole episode on, um, on cramping. Cramping is just the complete imbalance between Golgi tendons and proprioceptors, which cause your whole muscle to cramp down. And we do know that it's impossible to cramp in a lengthened state. So the only thing that I could think that was happening here is it was altering the signaling, the neural signaling between the Golgi tendons and the proprioceptors, allowing the Golgi tendons to relax a little more, even in that, that shortened state you were getting less activity from the Golgi tendons. And so you weren't getting that co-contraction and you were able to use more of the muscle completely going into the, the pedal stroke. Hmm. Now I did find one other study that looked at similar sort of warm up, but then doing longer, more threshold type efforts. And there you saw drop in, in efficiency. I, I was going to say, I, I think we should flip the coin and say, okay, so we know that we can get into these lengthened positions and increase your ability to to move, right? That's that's what you're saying is that we're going to decrease the risk of cramping. We can increase the the efficiency essentially. Is, is that well, so the no, the, the the other study showed no loss of efficiency. So if you're a time trialist, it might not be the best idea. This you know, really the conclusion of this study was if you're a track rider doing really short right, efforts, that's, that's what I was thinking. Is that track. it might actually be a benefit, which again really shocked me because I would never tell a track rider to stretch beforehand. But the idea here is maybe it's it's just altering that that neural control of the muscles and getting the Golgi tendons to relax so that you are actually contract your your muscles are relaxing more at the right time and not 
fighting your your pedal mm -hmm. stroke. Right. One of the slight bits of evidence of that is not only were they able to generate more power, they were able to hit peak power in these efforts faster. That makes sense though, because the reciprocal the, the inhibition uh, is turned down. I mean, I'd I'd be curious to see what if we were to do, and of course, human studies, the IRB, all the other stuff makes it difficult. But what would happen if we were to have them go through this stretching, and then have them in, in, like immediately after go through activation for core stiffness, so t getting that abdominal bracing and uh, gluteals. Like I'm curious that that's yeah. where I go. So not necessarily where are we looking at with the stretching, but let's get some activation for the opposite side and let's see what goes on as well as getting the, the better stability. Well, I think you're, you're hitting on the right thing, which is there's very little research. There are so many giant holes and you know, these questions of we should do this, we should do that. We should see the effects of this and see the effects of that fully agree with you. And it hasn't been done. So it's, it's frankly right now in a bit of a confusing state. But I agree with what you said earlier, which is personally would never tell one of my athletes to stretch before a race. Mm -hmm. We're excited to be launching Off Course with Grant Holligy today. Here's a little sneak peek into his show. I feel like this has been the most fun nationals we've had in a couple of years. The crowds and the, the racing is just, the spectators were the most unreal thing I've ever experienced. The Pacific Northwest knows how to have a good time. Is there one thing that, that kind of overarchingly that you remember about racing cross in Europe? Over there, it's so insanely huge and popular. Also, they have really weird courses where you just walk down to this bar and you go to the back room, pay five euros, get a number that's been used before and has holes in it. You race in it and you take the number back, you get like three euros back. So I floated above on top of this crust of ice. The front of the sled went into the trench. My forehead went right into the shelf of ice. And I did a flip over my head and I immediately took my gloves and put them on my forehead. And I thought, oh my God, I don't want to ever let go of my head because my brain's just gonna fall out. Hey everybody, it's Grant Holicky, host of the brand new Fast Labs podcast, Off Course the podcast about what happens when the racing's over and life begins. Get in touch. You can email me at offcourse at fastlabs.com. That's offcourse at fastlabs.com or follow me on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, it's at Grant Holicky and on Instagram, it's at G Holicky. Remember to subscribe to Off Course wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show on iTunes. What are some other alternatives to stretching that you prefer, Menachem, whether it's strength training, foam rolling, things like that? It depends on the athlete in front of me and, and who they are. And they really come down to kind of a group. One is going to be more passive. So I'm, again, I'm not a big fan of passive stretching at all. I mean, if you were to come in and look at my logs from the athletes last decade, you'd probably see, again, you know, I think the last five years has been two or three. And again, very extreme cases. We're talking about post-surgery, didn't take care of it properly, wasn't treated right. Those are extreme cases where they came in and clearly they needed to get back to normal resting length, but it also involves uh, strength training. So this is kind of why, and one of the many reasons that drove me to start writing the Vortex Method in the first part. And that is we can address a lot of these imbalances through normal, regular, small, 
bits and pieces of care throughout the training year, throughout the, the training week, throughout the training day. So the first one is breathing. You know, most of us think we're breathing. I'm alive. I'm not dead. I must be doing it right. But actually learning how to get air into different places. And there's a great place called um, the Posture Restoration Institute. And I think they're based out of Northeast, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but they do a great job of helping us or teach about different postures and how different postures and breathing specifically into different areas can help you open up uh, tight muscles. And it's amazing how well it works. So tight hip flexors, we can use breathing to help with that. It's not a magic and not a cure-all, but that's number one. So that's where every single session is going to begin uh, with breathing. But even before that, depending on the athlete and their needs, I'll have them start or end the session with between four and six minutes of foam rolling. Now, that's not a lot of time. With foam rolling, there's three different approaches. One is you, you're kind of a dead fish. You find the tight spot. You just sit on it for 30 seconds a minute, you don't move. The second is where you find the tight spot and you're flexing the muscle. So you're activating the opposite side muscle and you're flexing it and extending. And the other option is you do that small kind of roll back and forth, kind of kneading it out. Now, each one of those is gonna have a different effect on the muscle, but it's gonna depend on the athlete and what they feel is best for them. But there are three different approaches for foam rolling and, and using the lacrosse ball. And it's gonna depend on what you feel you need or what your body responds to. That's number one. Then we get into the breathing, which almost all athletes, when we're done with the breathing, most of them want to start their, their workout. They're like, I feel great. I want to go. It allows them that, that two minutes, three minutes, you know, two to four breaths, long breaths in through the nose over four to eight seconds, hold for a count of three, deep breath out through the mouth or out through the nose, depending on what we're aiming for in that session. And then a pause with that full breath out, that, that part where you kind of feel like you're going to need to cough. This actually helps us reset a lot of the upper body, upper torso uh, muscles, and can also help us tap into tight hip flexors, tight lower back, one side or the other. So that's the first part of every session. That's how I would start with most people. And that's why that became the beginning part of the strength training sessions. But then we go into the dynamic warm-up, where we're actually putting you through ranges of motion that you have teaching you muscle coordination, raising your uh, core temperature, as well as getting you movements you don't get in, in biking, like uh, karaoke or uh, what I call ballerinas, where you kind of do sideways jumping jacks. And the reason these work for tight muscles is with a lot of cyclists and triathletes, because we're so linear, the muscles that move us laterally just don't get fired as much. So just sometimes simply putting someone through an extra round or two of, of you know, 30 feet each way of ballerinas, like, oh, my groin feels really good. So those would be the first three that I'd go to. Uh, and then after that, I'd go through, you know, the 3-1-3-1 tempo or maybe a 30-second isometric uh, bottom of the squat uh, goblet squat hold um, or putting them into positions and having them just co-contract the muscles. Like, okay, I want you to go into a single leg uh, deadlift and I want you to hold about a third of the way down, fire the glutes, feel the ground with the bottom of your foot, breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth. Hold for 15 seconds and then come back up from the glute while keeping your core nice and straight. So these are all the tools that I kind of use. One of the things you'll notice is I didn't talk about stretching or yoga uh, going through any of the actual strength training sessions. Now, some people would say, okay, I, I figure you're going to use that at the end. Well, actually, I like to use that kind of for a mind space kind of day where we're using it for complete recovery. So I firmly believe that once a year or once a week rather, as well as once a year, you need a break. So every week you should have one day off completely. 
I think that's an appropriate and great time to do a little bit of yoga, but not the kind where they're trying to make you more bendy, the kind that they're very focused on the soul side of things. So if you're the type of athlete who really likes to go and just, yeah, I'm going to be the best at yoga and be super bendy and like look like Gumby, well, probably not a good thing. But we can use yoga once a week, especially mid-season when you're logging a lot of time. Then we'll do what I like to call a movement session. And for a movement session, we're talking about 15 to 20 minutes of like a dynamic warm-up style of a, a movement where you're just going through. And then we'll add some yoga flow at the end. But the key for the yoga to help you uh, be able to progress we're not going for extremes. We're getting you to be able to hold these positions and postures. Uh, usually it's with a staggered stance, which is very natural, or the feet are parallel to one another, both pointing straight ahead. Uh, but usually it's just a natural kind of stance for you where you're going through like a founder's pose. I'm a big fan of the foundation by uh, Eric Goodman. Um, if you guys haven't had him on yet, he'd be a great guest, I think. But that's kind of an appropriate place where we're not going for these extremes. It's just we're trying to get you back into a normal range of motion that you've already had. And I think, you know, combine these and then we go into the eccentrics or the isometrics or the specific tempos. I think it's a fantastic way to really help people, you know, gain that quote unquote mobility or flexibility without having to spend these times in extreme positions that frankly, aren't that healthy. You're really, you know, screwing with the body's natural, what it's built for. And you're like, oh, you're an airplane. We're going to put you in the water and see what happens. Like, yeah, it'll float for a little bit. Uh, like, you know, the plane that landed in the Hudson, it floated for a little bit, but not so long. <laughs> so I know you're a big proponent of strength training as an alternative here. So Monacum, if you wouldn't mind, why don't you talk a little bit about that? We have to kind of keep in mind that, you know, you go to a surgeon, a surgeon wants to cut, a physical therapist wants to therapize, a strength coach wants to strength train. I kind of like to look at it from strength training is a fantastic tool for each one of these professionals in the right amount. So to the listeners, I'm not a proponent of only doing strength training or only doing breathing or only doing dynamic warm up. Every rider, every person, as you go through, as we heard with, with Trevor, with Trevor's nephew, every person is going to be different and it's going to change as they go through their life cycles. If you have an athlete who's getting ready to get married and they don't carry their stress very well, they're probably going to lose some of their flexibility and you can do all the stretching you want to try and get them there, but they're just naturally amped up. They're on that, they're in that fight or flight stage. Whereas somebody who's very, yeah, man, whatever, it's cool. Like, did you smoke something? No, man, it's all good. Just had a great ride, you know? Like that's that's going to be someone who's probably not going to need a ton of flexibility. So the strength training as an alternative, it's more of we need range of motion through what our natural range of motion is. So I can't get on a time trial bike without having a horrible backache and my hips feeling like someone's sticking flame knives or, you know, swords that are being worked out by an iron worker in them. So I'm not a, a time trialist. If that's you, take a step back and, and just kind of, am I going to make a lot of money out of this or am I getting that much enjoyment out of putting myself through that pain? And I'm not talking about the long thresholds, you know, that's, we need that. But where it's a physical pain in a joint, we need to think about, is this actually helping me? If that is the case and you feel, yes, it is helping you. Okay, great. Let's give you strength through that range of motion. And let's bring it back to that time trialist. Time trials comes in, uh, we'll put them through the, you know, we'll call it the vortex method. We have the foam rolling, we'll do some of the breathing and the breathing will do more specific to time trial position stuff as we get closer to the season. 
up until they get into about their peak. And then we're going to do the opposite because we need to keep that balance. So they're already getting so much time on the time trial bike. When we do our breath work, we're not going to mimic that. We're going to go the opposite way because we need to keep that balance. And that's where that strength training will come in. So if you're someone who finds that the stretching is really helping you now, or in February, the middle of February, you're just getting ready to, to log more miles and you've done a good job with strength training and you found that doing yoga twice a week is helping you, fantastic. Let's keep that. However, let's also add some strength training as an alternative to a third day of yoga. So instead, let's add some at-home stuff. So eccentric isometric, uh, where you're lowering the 3131 uh, tempo is a fantastic way to go. Uh, and also getting strength through length. And what this is, I mentioned the foundation flow before, uh, Eric Goodman and Peter Park. It's a fantastic flow because it's helping you get strength through length. And, and my kind of secret for the athletes that I do recommend go to yoga, usually they're individuals. I'm thinking of a very specific instructor or a very specific school that I know or, or yoga house that I know that they're teaching a specific way uh, and that the athlete also has the right mentality. The reason it's so specific and I recommend them to go there is because the, they're doing more what's called now beginner yoga classes. Trevor, have you ever done a beginner yoga class? Have you ever tried that? I have yet to find a beginner yoga class that was beginner enough for me. Maybe yes, so what did you notice in that beginner class? Like what were they having you do unlike the normal class? I was mostly noticing the instructor shaking their heads at me, to be honest with you. I was always... I have the, this this sounds like a joke, but this is this is real because I have a back problem. I have a very stiff back, and you know, yoga, downward dog. You should see me do a downward dog. It is the worst example you have ever seen. And the instructors always see me. They beeline to me. They try to help me. Then they get frustrated, and then they ignore me the rest of the class. Mm. Wait, so if it's not a downward facing dog, what is it? It's like a down downward. I, don't know, but it's it's a baked noodle, <laughs> pretty baked much noodle, downward baked noodle. But uh, yeah, in terms of what I notice for other people in the beginner class, I'm not sure. I mean, I've noticed the the beginner routine most places I have gone is is relatively similar. I have gone to some places where the, it's meant to be the beginner class, and they're having you do handstands and all this stuff. That I'm like, that ain't beginner. <laughs> Good that they went away from you after trying. Now, the one question is, do they, did anybody lay their hands on you and try and push you into positions? Yes. And I don't like that yes. because it hurts and it does my back in. Yeah. They shouldn't be putting their hands on you. Now, if it's a gentle, like, Hey, what about this? Cause sometimes I'll do that, but it's a very gentle, I'm not physically moving you. I'm just giving you tactile. Like I'll touch my index fingers and say, okay, Trevor, can you bring your right hip back? So there's more pressure on that foot that, um, on that uh, finger and you'll go, no. Okay. If they're taking you and physically moving you into positions, like trying to jostle you, like jocking a horse, you need to get up out of that class and leave right away. Not okay. So it's good that they left you alone. And the reason why I asked you is because you have the right mindset, in my opinion, for what you're looking for. You're looking around They're They're in, you know, paying attention to what's going on around you. So most of them are similar because it's this westernized, very uh, corporate style of yoga. You can think, you know, Lululemon, whatever else, but the yoga we're doing is not what it was. You know, people are like, yoga's around since the 1400s. Not like this. <laughs> that was very mindful. It wasn't focused on movement. The other concept is, is that because they're similar, they're holding you in specific poses for longer periods of time. They're trying to build up the tissue tolerance, which is not a bad thing necessarily, as long as they're not trying to put you into these uh, outright bad positions. 
So I'm going to take a, a shot here. And Chris, I'm guessing, have you have you tried yoga at all? Have you done one or two? Or are you kind of like, nah, not really? There was a period of time where I was able to do yoga for free, keyword, for probably several months in a row. And I found it actually quite enjoyable, but not enough to, um, I'm a cheapskate. I'll admit it. I wouldn't pay for it. But this this instructor was very good. Never hands on the body. Um, you know, it was not about holding poses for a long time. It was not a competition in any way. It was much more about relaxation. And I would end the classes wanting to curl up and take a nap because it felt mm -hmm. good. You know, that's that's my idea of a good yoga session. And for the vast majority of the listeners out there, that's what we want. We're so wound up in our sport in these positions. That's the type where you have athletes come out with breakout sessions from yoga. They're like, yoga solved my back pain. Not really. You learned how to release stress and you carry stress in your lower back. And then, you know, balancing that with the strength training is where it's really a great way to go. That's what we want out of yoga is we want to go through natural ranges of motion that we should have or we did have. When I say should have, not everybody can extend their leg behind them. I have basketball players at a very high level. They don't get full extension of their hip. They just don't move that way. Their hips are very antiverted. That's okay. But going for that, that relaxation, that mental relaxation, allowing you to dial back. Uh, Chris, was that a hot yoga class, by the way, or that was regular? Regular. Okay. Because the hot yoga class can be really problematic where you're actually overheating the body uh, artificially, and that can lead to more soreness. And a lot of us like to think soreness means more fitness. <laughs> not, not quite the case. But doing a yoga class like that once a week where you're relaxing and having that as your one day a week as off if you're not pushing tissues, you're not pushing the body, the muscles to the extreme, that's a fantastic way to spend your off day because you really are relaxing. You're allowing the body to come back to homeostasis in all the different systems. If you're not that type, there are a lot of people that are, their mind is just running, okay, when can I push? Let's use strength training as an alternative. Let's put you through positions and get you to fire those muscles and get you to activate the glutes, the posterior chain, also your abdominal hoop, getting you into good positions to, again, create proximal stiffness for distal movement. Then we'll use strength training as an alternative. On the other side, if someone's very bendy and they come in and you put them on the time trial bike, especially as a bike figure, like, oh, this is going to be fun. How low can we get you and keep your power up? Then don't, let's not go to yoga unless it's the type that Chris went to because you don't need that necessarily. And that's kind of where we have to, you know, the strength training as an alternative, it's a tool. It's just one tool. I would love to say everybody should come to me and, you know, pick up the book, but that's not the case. Some people are going to ask me, Hey, is the book for me? Let's jump on a phone call for 10 minutes and figure out, Nope, not for you. And I've done that. I have this one guy, every time I put a product out, Hey, is your certification for me? Nope. Hey, is this course for me? Nope. And then the last one, Hey, is this 12 week program for me? Actually it is, but not yet next fall because he was already doing X. So it's finding the right tool at the right time for the right athlete. And that's where you can really unlock. That isn't to say you shouldn't try it. Don't, tr don't not try yoga. Well, coach Brody was like, oh, don't, yoga sucks. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if it's a competition, it sucks. Um, but it's also knowing your body. So that's kind of where I'd go with it. And I'm, I'm really interested to hear more from you guys, like Chris and Trevor, I'm really interested. Uh, you know, you both had very different experiences with yoga. I'm curious to know, Trevor, if you had gone to the yoga class that Chris did, or maybe you did, would you have been more inclined to, to continue with that? Do you think if it was more about the relaxation and 
leaving feeling de-stressed or just not for you overall? Let, no, actually, let me uh, give you a little more of an answer to that. Um, so when I was in British Columbia training out of the center, we had a very good yoga instructor who created a yoga program specifically for cyclists. And I did that for years and it was fantastic. Uh, but it was also everything you're talking about. It was, we were never pushed through things that we couldn't do. Uh, she was very aware of, of issues that cyclists have. And there was a big relaxation component because she knew that we were training hard and this was as much about us showing up on a Monday and relaxing. So it was fantastic. I loved it. Um, it was when I moved to Toronto um, that I, I looked for some yoga studios. I'm sure there are good ones. Uh, I just unfortunately went to a couple places where it was more that they'd come put their hands on you. They'd try to push me into downward dog and all that sort of stuff. And I went, this isn't right. It wasn't an issue with yoga, actually. I, I agree with you. I think yoga done right is, is a good thing. Um, it's just finding yoga done right. And Chris, how about you? Would, it, would you have continued if you would have been in the other type where they're really trying to like position you and jostle you? And No, definitely not. Yeah, I would have had the same reaction. I would have walked out. That's not what I would have been seeking had I you know, gone to a class like that. So certainly wouldn't uh, have stuck around to have people force me into positions or feel that need to compete with the person next to you on their yoga mat trying to do some bendy thing that I couldn't possibly do unless you broke my leg in half. And <laughs> it's funny because, and I laugh because you're using these words and those are the same words that a lot of athletes, I'm sure you guys have heard it as well. Like I felt like they're trying to break my leg, trying to get me in a pose. Like, you know, we all have performance limiters and, and responses to our training. Uh, if we're really looking to increase our power output and get more out of the energy we're putting out, some people yoga is okay, but it really depends on the, the instructor and understanding what the body's actually trying to get. I mean, you know, we're talking about flexibility, stretching and lengthening, like to a point it's going to be good. We're in a sport where we're very crouched forward and we're very closed off. So the, that's why the breathing works so, so well. And you know what, now that I think about it, I, uh, if you guys are okay with it, I'm just going to give away a chapter. I'll, I'll give away the uh, performance limiters chapter because everything we're talking about here is, is wow, kind of awesome. covered in there. That's appreciated. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we're just, I'm just sitting here looking at what we, we discussed today. Like it only makes sense, right? Like there's all different types of performance limiters. And if yours is that you're losing range of motion or you don't have that balance, like stretching and mobility work within reason is absolutely for you. And there's so many different paths because what I'm looking at here, like, Trevor talked about going through all of the, the different uh, physiology and, and the mobility for the tissues, the, the, adapt, the adaptations to stretch, the neurophysiology. Like for some people, yoga will be good. Other people, strength will be good. Other people, tempo strength will be good. And it's really a matter of like figuring out what are my performance limiters. And once you identify those, then you can kind of figure out and maybe, you know, Trevor, obviously for you right now, the type of yoga you were going to is awful, but maybe on the flip side of things, you know, having the relaxation one would be fantastic for you. So I'm just, you know, kind of looking at it from that perspective of we can, we can do a lot of good with this and helping people like better understand what's my actual performance limiter. Is it that I'm walking around and what did you say? Shuffling like a, a grandma. Was that the verbiage? Yep. Basically. Or you know, do I still look shuffling like Trevor? Oh, Ooh. shots fired. Ooh. <laughs> you did that last time I was on. Cross the bow. Oh, but <laughs> yeah, we, we have this thing where we like to pick on each other. 
He's sick now, too, so he doesn't even have the energy to pick on me back, do you? Oh, boy. I'll just breathe on you. I don't even have to say anything <laughs> That's back. True. Good point. And I'll win. Yeah, shit. <laughs> Menachem, you've been on the show before, so you, you know this. You know the routine. And I know you like to talk, but we're going to cut you off at 60 seconds this time. You've got 60 seconds to sort of encapsulate everything we've talked about here today. And ready, set, Go. I actually don't like to talk that much. It's just I love talking about training. <laughs> My wife will tell you I'm an introvert. Um, as it comes to what we talked about today, it depends. You know, if you feel that you're losing range of motion and muscles are tight, I would recommend starting off with a little bit of gentle yoga, but focusing more on the mindset and the relaxation side of things, and also going through the strength side of things with the eccentric isometrics, the three one three one tempo. But try different things and see what works for you. I like to follow what I call the Dan John rule of try it for two weeks in a row, not every day. Again, we have that one day off a week. Try it for two weeks in a row. Is it working? Great. Keep going. If not, change one variable at one time and see how that goes. Just like bike fitting. We're not going to move you up and forward or up and back. We're going to move the seat up and have you go through. So that's what I, I look at. And just keep in mind, when you read research, you really need to know how to read it. I think I actually did a podcast. I don't know if you released it or not, but understand how to actually read the research. Don't just see it posted in an article somewhere. The research says you actually need to go and look, dissect the research. Who are the participants? How do they test? Is it reliable? Is it accurate? Is it precise? We actually, we actually did an episode on that very subject called Learning to Trust the Science, episode 85. So check that out. Trevor? 60 seconds, you know how to do this. What are your take-homes? I am going to go back to that analogy of the elastic, which, like I said, really isn't an analogy because muscles or the muscle tendon unit is a viscoelastic, has viscoelastic properties. It is an elastic. So think of the two extremes. One is that short little old elastic that isn't very stretchy. You don't want that. That can lead to injury. But at the same time, you don't want that super long thin elastic that's really floppy and can't really hold very much uh, that doesn't really snap back those are the two extremes you don't want to be on either of those extremes you want that big strong supple elastic with a good snap that's the right length for what you're trying to do and that isn't just oh i'm going to do a ton of stretching a ton of stretching is just taking either of those other two muscles and yanking on them yanking on them until they they snap or just get so long you can't use them so I'm really glad that Menachem brought in, you need to be doing strength training. You need to be doing all this other work so that you are helping that muscle to be supple, to be the right length, to have a good snap to it, all the properties that you want for a high-performance muscle. Chris? Well, I think I would refer back a little bit to Menachem's uh, take-home, but also throw in my story or remind people of the the story of the the high school track team that you might have been on or the high school basketball team that you might have been on and this this belief by that coach or those athletes that oh you just have to do this is just part of what you do you get in the gym every day you do these stretches you're not really sure what you're doing you might not even be doing them the right way uh, you you spend 15 minutes doing that and then you go about your workout or your run or your uh, free throw practice whatever it is and sometimes you just shouldn't take that stuff uh, without 
rethinking whether that's appropriate or not, whether that's improving your performance or not, or whether it's actually leading to uh, injury susceptibility or, or some sort of damage. So really assess what we've said today and make sure what we're what you're doing now is appropriate and what you find that works for you is the best fit for you you as an athlete you as an individual you for your 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 anatomy right down to um, what discipline within cycling that you're trying to improve that was another episode of fast talk as always we love your feedback email us at fast talk at fastlabs.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 719-800-2112. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, or wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. Those reviews are important as the more we get, the easier it is for other people to find Fast Talk. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. From Menachem Brody, Payson McKelvin and Trevor Connor. I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.